1: Now last week uh, we looked at Exodus chapter 9, so turn in your Bibles there, we zeroed in on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. I said ordinarily I would have gone uh, and given an overview of the chapter and the plagues that uh, God did there, and so that's what we're going to begin doing this week. Also perhaps uh, get on into chapter 10 as time allows. But uh, God is continuing here in Exodus 9 to display his power, to show his might, And to prepare Pharaoh's heart and the heart of the Egyptians for the leaving of uh, the Israelites from their country. And he's doing it in a mighty and a strong and powerful way. Uh, In this way, and I'm grateful for the emphasis we've had in our worship tonight on the name of the Lord. Uh, All of the hymns and the choruses that we've sung have focused on the majestic name of the Lord. But what is God's name other than the accumulation of his reputation through the scripture and what what he's done over time? And so here at the time of the Exodus, God gained a name for himself, made a name and a reputation. And thousands of years later, we who uh, are so distant from the Israelites and the Egyptians who have our own culture and our own history, who were uh, born yesterday, really, as Job said, uh, we still Re- rejoice and delight in the name and the reputation of God that he displays uh, at the time of the exodus. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at the plagues. We're going to see how far we can get in chapter 9 and 10, and God willing, we may be able to finish chapter 10 and be prepared for the plague on the firstborn, which is the final and the most devastating plague uh, that he sent. Beginning at chapter 9, then verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses and donkeys and camels and on your cattle and sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh sent men to investigate and found that not even one of the animals of the israelites had died yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go this is the fifth plague out of ten god sending a plague in this case on the livestock again we note that pharaoh is warned ahead of time this is the grace of god we've seen that there are three cycles of three plagues each And then the 10th plague different than the others. And in the 3rd and the 6th and the ninth plague, there was no warning at all before the plague came. God did not need to give a warning. He didn't need to give a warning for any of these plagues. Matter of fact, he didn't need to give the plagues. As he says later in this chapter, by now I could have wiped you out completely and taken the Israelites out if that had been my choice. But instead we see God working with Pharaoh persuading creating a set of circumstances around pharaoh such that eventually his heart would yield and yet at the same time in a mysterious and a powerful way hardening pharaoh's heart because he wanted all ten of these plagues done this is the way that God works it's a way that's very mysterious to us but God is influential God is persuasive he sets circumstances around us and we can testify to that how we came to faith in Christ It wasn't absent from circumstances, but people would come in at key moments and persuade us. Things would be said. Events would happen. Perhaps a a sickness or some kind of maybe a death in our family. Something would happen. Perhaps there would be some blessing. But at any rate, God orchestrating circumstances in a marvelous way so that we might come to faith in Christ. And so it is also with these plagues, God sending plagues one after the other, in this case on the livestock. Notice also that the focus here again is on worship. Let my people go so that they may worship me. I think it's easy for us to forget that that's what we were created for. We were created to worship God. We were created to honor Him. We were created to have our hearts filled with Him. To be in awe, to be in wonder at the nature of God and His mighty deeds. That's what we were made for. And so he's saying, let my people go that they might worship me. He also gives them a very specific plague threatened here. He's threatening a plague on the livestock in the field, specifically the livestock that's out in the field. This is not every single solitary animal. Or else there would be none left for the seventh plague. You remember the plague of hail? In in verse 19 it says, Give now an order to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter. Because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. So if all of the livestock were killed in in the plague on the livestock here, the fifth plague, there'd be none left to bring in from the hail. So he's very specific about what livestock he means. This is also the second plague in which God makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Not a single hoof, not a single animal of the Israelites would be affected by the plague. He's very specific about this. He's going to protect the Israelites and their possessions at this point. He's going to protect them and the plague will not fall on them. Now at this point, I want to give you a warning based on an evangelical commentary that I read concerning these plagues. This is a, uh, a trend that I see in some of these commentaries where they're seeking to engage and interact with other commentaries and with archaeological research and with the scientific world and trying to give, I think, a naturalistic explanation for these plagues. Now if you look at perhaps a heading in your Bible you'll see a series of plagues. Uh, the plague of blood on the Nile River and then the plague of frogs You go from the plague of frogs to the plague of gnats and of flies. And from there you go to a plague on the livestock and then you have the plague of boils. Now you could kind of put those together, couldn't you, in a naturalistic way. In other words, somehow the river of the Nile was fouled and it caused the frogs to come up out of the river. When the frogs came up and they were everywhere, certainly the next thing would be flying insects like flies and gnats. Once those start flying around and there's heaps of dead frogs everywhere, the next thing you might expect would be a plague on the livestock, disease among the livestock. And from there you go to boils breaking out on people. And so there's a chain of events here. And I want to say to you very carefully, that may be the way it happened. But the text doesn't say that. And we need to be very careful about this. Let me read what this commentator says. Normally, the Egyptian cattle were stabled from May to December inclusive during the flood and drying off periods when the pastures pastures, were waterlogged. Thus, some of the cattle were already being turned out to pasture down south, so it must have been sometime in January. These cattle were then affected when they came into contact with the heaps of dead frogs left from the second plague and died of bacillus anthracis. That's anthrax. Uh, The hoof and mouth disease. The Israelite cattle were exempted from the plague, possibly because the delta would have been slower in recovering from the effects of the flood, which was further downstream. Also, the Israelites' different attitude toward corpses, they took precautions to deal with heaps of dead carcasses, may have spared their own cattle. Danger, danger, even though this is an an expositors or evangelical kind of commentary. This is not what the text says. And as a matter of fact, if you have this kind of a naturalistic explanation of the plague, then how will Pharaoh say, this is the finger of God? There is no natural explanation. And I think this is exactly what God's trying to protect uh, Pharaoh from saying. When he makes a distinction, he says, there's plague everywhere in Egypt, but not for the Israelites. How can this be? It's like Gideon's fleece. How can the whole ground be wet in this one area dry? Or how can the whole ground be dry in this one area wet? Only God could have done this. That's what he intends the reaction to be. When Pharaoh sees it, he knows there's no natural explanation. He's not thinking, well, they're further up the delta and you know they have different attitudes toward corpses. Oh, why do we do this kind of thing? I think rather let's just take what the text says. This was a miracle. This was a mighty act of God an act of judgment on the livestock. Pharaoh, of course, sends envoys to see if there are any animals among the Israelites that are struck with the plague. And sure enough, the message comes back, oh, they're all healthy. And yet his heart is unyielding. By the way, this week after the teaching I did a week ago on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, I did a careful study again. I wasn't satisfied with some of the research I'd done. And I noticed a consistent pattern of what we could call the passive. In other words, many of these times when it speaks of Pharaoh's heart, it's not told who hardens Pharaoh's heart. It just really should be translated in the passive. Pharaoh's heart was hard. And we're not really sure whether he hardens his own heart or whether God hardens it. And I've said to you before, I really don't think it makes a difference. In the end, it is God, and in the end, it's Pharaoh in every case. So God working in a mighty way, and he will not let the people go. So on we go to the sixth plague. This plague was not sufficient. None of the first four plus this one. Now five plagues. Pharaoh will not let the people go. So we go on to the next plague. God is very persuasive. God is very powerful. God is very patient working in Egypt look at verses 8 through 12 then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh it will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on men and animals throughout the land so they took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh Moses tossed it into the air and festering boils broke out on men and animals The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Again, as we've mentioned, this being the sixth plague, there is no warning at all. It just happens this time. The plague breaks out, boils on their skin. And for the first time, human lives are directly threatened here. A disease has struck human beings. They have these deadly boils which are coming on their skin. Somewhat, I think, foreshadowing the tenth plague, the plague on the firstborn. Again, God firing in, as it were, a warning shot across the bow. Saying, I'm able to lay my hand even on your bodies. So be very careful and repent. God dealing in this way with the Egyptians. Notice that the furnace from which the soot was taken was probably used to bake bricks. Realized that the bricks that the uh, Egyptians were using to build, that the Israelites were making, bricks without straw and all that, had been the bane of the Israelites' existence all this time. And so I think there is probably a connection between the soot from these furnaces and the judgment on the uh, Egyptians, a stark reminder, I think, of Israel's years of bitter bondage. Uh, ...of the taskmaster's lash across their backs. And so the soot is thrown up into the air in Pharaoh's presence. He's there when when uh, Moses and Aaron do this. And so there's somewhat of a connection there between the soot and the festering boils. Pharaoh can see it. Symbolic, but it soon spreads over all of uh, Egypt. Note also we have here a direct act of judgment on the magicians... ...the ones who earlier had counterfeited miracles... They are the uh, envoys, the messengers of Satan, I think, of the the devil. And now they are physically judged. They cannot stand before Moses and Aaron because of the plagues on their skin. And here we have, as we've said before, a direct hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The Lord directly hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Now the third plague in this chapter, the plague of hail, verses 13 through 35. Then the Lord said to Moses, "'Get up early in the morning, Confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Give an order now to bring bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt, on men and animals, and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail, and lightning flashed down toward the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell, and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields, stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have Uh, had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go and you don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and barley were destroyed since the barley had headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripen later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped. The rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. One of the things that strikes me here is God's threat and warning in which he says, by now I could have extended my hand and struck you with a plague that would have wiped you from the face of the earth. He also says, I'm going to bring my full force, the full force of my plagues on you. That's a striking thing, isn't it? I mean, it's been devastating up till this point. And it's just getting worse. But you see God restraining himself and even... With the plague on the firstborn, he restrains himself, doesn't he? However dreadful that plague is, he still restrains himself because Egypt remains as a nation, even though God could have erased the earth from them. This is the power of God and also the wisdom of God, his restraint and his care. Here he is directly confronting and warning Pharaoh in his presence. Note also, I think, a fascinating warning in which he gives them some advice. You notice in the middle of this he said, I would advise you, to take your animals out of the field because the hail is coming and any animal left out in the field is going to be destroyed by the plague of hail. And it says that Pharaoh's officials that heard the word of the Lord and feared it, they took the advice. They went and got their livestock in off the field. And so there's a strong evidence here of the importance of listening to the word of God, of fearing the Lord and listening carefully to his word. It reminds me very much of the uh, time when the uh, Israelites were out in the desert and God sent poisonous serpents among them. And Moses set up the bronze serpent. And anyone that heard the uh, message about the bronze serpent and was bitten by a poisonous snake would merely look up at the bronze serpent and be healed. But those that did not hear the word and heed it, those that did not obey, well, they perished. And so there's a division here made in Egypt between those that fear the word of the Lord. Even Egyptians, those that fear the word and those that do not. But the purpose of this plague is clear, isn't it? Look at verse 14. He says in verse 14, So that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. And then again in verse 16, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is putting his power on display. He wants all the world to see what he can do. And why? So that we might be saved. That we might have eternal life. That we might hear of a God like this, who creates heaven and earth in six days, and who rules over heaven and earth in a powerful way. Who even rules over kings like Pharaoh, and can do anything he wants with them that we might hear and believe, that we might call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And so, on the basis of this, his name is proclaimed in all the earth and his power displayed to the ends of the earth. Well, as we see the effects of this plague, Pharaoh is shaken by it, isn't he? He's moved. In verse 27 and 28, Pharaoh is obviously shaken by this plague and he asked Moses to pray, to stop the thunder and hail. He says, we've had enough. He even goes beyond this and acknowledges personal sin and the text says he sinned again after this and hardened his heart and so it's sin to harden your heart against god even though god is the one hardening his heart in some of these cases clearly stated and yet pharaoh's is the sin and he says i have sinned in not letting the people go he acknowledges personal sin he repents And had he been in most evangelical churches today, he would have signed the card having walked the aisle and he'd probably pretty soon become uh, put in a position of leadership. But God knows the heart. And this outward sign of repentance, this outward display is not genuine. He hasn't really turned. Moses saw through it clearly, didn't he? Look at verses 29 and 30 again. When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. He sees right through this. There's a display of, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it. I won't ever do it again. And yet it's not genuine, is it? He hasn't truly repented. He says, I know you don't fear the Lord. Not yet. How did he know that? Perhaps God revealed it. Perhaps he could see it in some other aspects of his carriage, the way he was carrying himself. At any rate, his repentance was not genuine. Note also, it says in verse 29, again the motive, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Does God have the right to do all this? Does he have the right to destroy the the barley and the wheat and the spelt and the livestock and even bring plagues on people? Oh, yes, he does. We must value human life highly, but it's not the highest value in the universe, is it? God's glory and his right to rule is higher even than human life. As a matter of fact, human human life has value only in direct connection to the image of God in which we're created. And so the highest value in the universe is God himself. And he has the right to do anything he wants with the world. So that you may know, in verse 29, that the earth is the Lord's and he can do with it whatever he chooses. Notice also that the narrative as it progresses proves Moses to have been right about Pharaoh. Look at verse 31 and following. The flax and the barley were destroyed since the barley had headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and the spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Uh, they ripen later to be eaten by the locusts. We'll get to that in a moment. Verse 33. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. So Moses was vindicated, it was true. He said, I know that you don't fear the Lord. Not yet. And so there would be more plagues in store. Note also the incredible power of prayer. Consistently in these accounts on the plagues. God is connecting both the bringing of the plagues and the removal to Moses and Aaron's intercession, the power of prayer. And so we've seen all of these plagues. We've seen uh, the Nile turned into blood. We've seen the plague of frogs, the plague of gnats, the plague of flies, the plague on the livestock, the plague of boils, and the plague of hail. And none of it is sufficient to persuade Pharaoh to let the people go. And so we move on into chapter ten, the plague of locusts and of darkness. Chapter ten, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, and that they may know sorry, that, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your fathers nor your forefathers have ever seen from the day they settled in this land till now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go, worship the Lord your God, he said. But just who will be going? Moses answered, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you if I let you go, along with your women and children. Clearly you are bent on evil. No. No. Have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you have been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over Egypt, so that locusts will swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his hand or his staff, over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields, and the fruit and the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. Stop there. In verse 1 and 2, the Lord commands Moses to go to Pharaoh and to give him a message. Tell him about the plague of the locusts. Warn him. And so we're back to warning ahead of time. But this time he says something interesting. It's the very same message he gave to Moses and Aaron before they even went to Egypt. Go and give this message, but I want you to know you're going to be ineffective. Go and proclaim this message to Pharaoh, but I'm telling you, I've hardened his heart, and he's not going to let them go, but preach anyway. This is a fascinating thing, isn't it? Were Moses and Aaron's words ineffective? Did they have no purpose? Oh, hardly so. They had a purpose, It just the purpose wasn't to bring Pharaoh to repentance so that he should let the people go. God is doing much bigger things here. Some people are troubled by the sovereignty of God, and can there be a free and open invitation of the gospel if it's ineffective? They say, how can you put these two things together? Well, they're very clearly put together in this text. Moses and Aaron are commanded to go and preach a message, and they're also told ahead of time they're going to be ineffective. I've hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he will not let the people go, but preach anyway. It's the very same thing that happened with Jeremiah. Go down to the temple and proclaim to them this message that Nebuchadnezzar is coming. But they're not going to listen to you. Their hearts are hard like flint. But go and preach anyway. Now we're not told this. We're actually told that God has elect, has chosen people in every tribe and language and people and nation. And that people will listen and that they will repent. The fields are white for harvest. And yet at the same time we know that many times we preach the gospel and the people will not listen. And they will not repent. And so the Lord has commanded them to go. And tells them ahead of time that they're going to be ineffective he also says in verse 2 that this plague the plague of locusts and all the accumulated plagues are given so that they might tell their children and their grandchildren how God dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how he performed his miraculous signs among them and he says that you may know that I am the Lord this is a consistent pattern among the Jews a pattern That we would take, that we God's people, that the Jews also would take their instructions and the history and the heritage that the Lord has entrusted to them and pass it on to their children. Take a minute and look at the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's put your finger here in Exodus and go over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, beginning at verse 4, sorry, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on the gates. Stop there for a moment. He says, I'm giving you a set of commands, the law of Moses. First of all, parents, these commands are to be on your hearts. Not just in your mind, not just superficially on your tongue, but they're to be graven into your hearts. You're to take the word of God and let it saturate your own heart. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. You can't do anything for your children if the commands of God aren't on your heart first. So Deuteronomy 6.6, these commandments are to be on your hearts. But then it says, don't let it stay there. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them. When you sit at home and when you rise, when you walk along the road, in every situation... I've talked about this before, but in Deuteronomy 6, 7, it says, Impress them on your children. Literally, it means sharpen them in. Repetition again and again, sharpening the commands of God into the hearts of the children. Now you'd say, wait a minute, are you trying to brainwash your children? Exactly. Yes, you're trying to wash their brains with the word of God. That they would be clean and pure. That they might fear the Lord and keep his commandments. Yes, of course you're trying to brainwash your children. So that they also, in turn, will believe and love the Lord and, in their time, will brainwash their children too and teach them to fear the Lord. So he says, talk about these commands again and again. And then in Deuteronomy 6:20 20 through 25, in the future... When your son asks you, What is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God. So that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, then that will be our righteousness. So not only are the commands of God to be impressed on your children, but also the heritage, the history of God. Tell your children what God did to Pharaoh. Tell your children about the ten plagues. Tell your children what he did at the Red Sea. Tell your children about the Passover, the plague on the firstborn. Tell them these things. Not just the commands of God, but the whole heritage of God. How much richer is our heritage? Think of all that God has done since then. Think of what he did in Christ in sending his own son. And all the miracles that Jesus did. And how he died on the cross. And how he was raised from the dead. All of that. And think of how the gospel has progressed since then. 2,000 years of the church growing through great sacrifice through the martyrs and missionaries. Preaching the gospel. We have so much heritage to give our children. Impress the commands, the law of God on their hearts. But tell them the history too. All the stories of what God has done for generations. Psalm 145, verse 4 through 7 says, One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. I love that psalm. That's Psalm 145. They will do this. I will do that. They will do this. I will do that. They is the next generation. I will also pray. So together, parents and children, praising the Lord for his great and mighty deeds. A kind of a dialogue from one generation to the next. So that when you die, and you're gathered to your fathers, when you go to your reward, there's a generation of godly people to take on after you. And so one generation commends these powerful deeds to the Lord. Also in Psalm 78, verse 1 and following, it says, O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. What we have heard and known what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children, so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds but would keep His commands." And so these ten plagues were to be entrusted to the next generation. They were to be told so that they would tell also the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren so that one generation would commend the mighty deeds of God to the next. And so in chapter 10, we see the beginning of the plague, the plague of locusts. And God willing, if we have time next time, we'll continue from here.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org.